From Foreign Policy, I'm Cameron Abadi, sitting in for Sarah Wildman. This is the ER. This week, the immigration debate. In the era of President Trump, there aren't that many issues as polarizing for Americans as immigration. No hate! No fear! Immigrants are welcome here! No hate! No fear! Immigrants are welcome here! Trump got his start pledging to drastically reduce migration from Latin America. He also promised to end it entirely for Muslim migrants. Donald J. Trump is calling for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States until our country's representatives can figure out what the hell is going on. He's made good on at least some of those promises. Well, it's happening. It's not build that wall anymore. It's continue building that wall because we're building. We're building it. We're fixing it miles and miles. We have $1.6 billion. We're fixing the wall. We're building wall. And the sand. debate over immigration has now broken down into two blocks, bitterly opposed to each other. On the one hand, the Republican Party's primarily white voters who feel their own cultural and economic status is threatened by new immigrants. Look, I have no ill will against people that want to improve their lives. I just don't want them to do it at the expense of my children and my countrymen. Thank you! And on the other Democratic Party's more diverse coalition that argues any restrictions on diversity are un-American and inherently discriminatory. Donald Trump seems to want us to believe that immigrants are either terrorists or criminals. But here, these people are who they are. Look at these faces. Are they any kind of threat to America? No, they're the promise of America. Cutting across this debate is the guest on today's podcast, Raihan Salam, author of a new book, Melting Pot or Civil War, A Son of Immigrants Makes the Case Against Open Borders. Raihan's a second-generation immigrant who feels strongly that America's immigration policies need to become more restrictive, not for the sake of the already advantaged Americans, but for the sake of the migrants themselves and their children and their children's children. He's also, by the way, the husband of one of our deputy editors here at Foreign Policy. In his book, he argues that migrants have a much better chance of assimilating economically and culturally to mainstream life in America if the size of their ethnic group doesn't continually grow over time. He also describes a potential compromise on immigration policy that he hopes will bring the two sides of America's debate back together. Raihan, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Cameron. I really appreciate it. You're a son of immigrants, it says in the subtitle, that makes two of us here. So why don't you start by telling us what that immigrant background exactly is? Gosh, that's a very long and winding story. But the short version is that my parents settled in the United States in 1976. They have lived in Brooklyn ever since then. They both settled with my two sisters, both of whom were very little. They were toddlers uh, at the time. And I was born at the very end of 1979. So I am one of very few uh, native-born Americans of Bangladeshi descent who are as old as I am. Of that 200,000 or so people of Bangladeshi origin, about a quarter of them are U.S.-born. 
the vast majority of whom are little kids. How, how did your parents arrive? What was the status of their visa at that point? My mother uh, was, um, she is the one who received a visa as a skilled worker. You know, as you know, U.S. immigration policy has changed quite a lot over the years. But at the time, you know, there was an appetite for folks with her particular credential. My mother is trained as a dietitian, So she's the one who secured the visa. But my mother was also the one who was more reluctant to make the move. Uh, it was really my Why father. Why is that? What was, what was it? I mean, the short version is that... My mother, like me, is just a kind of more naturally patriotic, parochial type. Uh, she is very much her father's daughter. My grandfather on my mother's side uh, is someone who was very professionally accomplished. He's someone who, you know, as I understand it, I never knew him, but he had a lot of opportunities, but he was very keen to stay. And my mother had a bit of that too. Uh, my father, on the other hand, is just a more instinctively searching person. Um, he has always been a little bit more of an individualist. So as in the case of many migrant families, um, you know, there was some ambivalence going into it. It was complicated. Some of those ambivalences, some of that, uh, those hesitations and reservations are irrational. I mean, you describe also in the book that this process of immigrating and assimilating is not an easy one. It requires a lot of work. And Norman Podhoritz famously described it as a brutal bargain. And it was a really artful, perfect distillation of the experience for most people, I'd say. Um, the Brooklyn you grew up in was a very different Brooklyn in terms of the social tensions in the city, in terms of the uh, ways that communities interacted with each other. Can you describe the Brooklyn of your youth? Sure. The short version of it is simply that it felt combustible. It was a place that often felt dangerous, um, that felt as though you had different communities that rub shoulders, not always happily or peacefully. I remember growing up, just the local news was full of stories about uh, this or that racial incident, this or that act of violence. And then, you know, these individual acts oftentimes seem to spill over into this larger conflagration. And so, yeah, I mean, that's mm. certainly my <laughs> vague memory of it. As, as that's a how kid. I remember it, too. I grew up I was born in Brooklyn, but I grew up on Long Island. My immigrant parents moved there. But I recall Brooklyn in, in my 1980s youth as being a place that wouldn't go to willingly or, or, or voluntarily to spend well, time. When I, when I tell people where I was from, when I was outside of home, you know, people would react as though I was living in the kind of gangland Chicago, the Prohibition era. Yeah, I mean, and that wasn't right either, right? I mean, it wasn't as though I was uh, taking my life into my own hands every single time I, I kind of left my front door to pick up the paper. But it definitely was a place that felt very tense. And there weren't tremendous number of other folks from Bangladesh to interact with. And so who did you socialize with? Well, yeah, I mean, just to underscore that, one thing that happens in that set of circumstances is that you have a somewhat broader ambit. You relax your standards for who counts as a co-ethnic, let's say. So funnily enough, my parents wound up bonding very strongly with uh, a group of fellow immigrants who are from India, from West Bengal. They were also Bengali speakers, and of course there was uh, you know, a lot they had in common. But you know, though my family is Muslim, and though my parents are pretty observant, I mean, it's kind of ebbed and flowed over the years, but you know, we would go to Hindu pujas. We would go to these festivals regularly. They were a huge part of my upbringing. Um, but you know, to your larger point, I mean, there's the world of home, there's the world of my family, and then there's also the world of the public school. 
And that was where I made my friendships. We lived in Borough Park, and that was, at the time, a pretty Hasidic neighborhood. It's become more intensely so since then. And, you know, the school I attended was really diverse, but I think I was the only kid, as far as I know, who spoke Bengali as a native language. There was one other South Asian kid in my class that I remember, and there was a you know a cluster of East Asian kids, many of whom became very good friends, a lot of um, Jewish kids, other kids from various you know white ethnic backgrounds whose families had been in Brooklyn for some time. So it was a really diverse mix. I think that's a fascinating look at what assimilation consists of on a kind of micro level. We use that term, everyone uses that term sort of as a cliche or sort of describe a broad abstract process. But when you look at it in detail, it, it consists of those interactions at public school. For your parents, it seems like the assimilation consisted of their work life in a lot of ways. That's right. Uh, so as I entered this building where we're recording the podcast right now, I noticed two guys probably around my age, probably early middle-aged types, and they were both speaking to each other in Bengali. And I thought to myself, gosh, you know, should I stop them and just chat with them a bit? But I thought, okay, no, I'm waiting for a camera to pick me up. But it was really striking because actually my father literally worked in this complex in the Metro Tech Center when it first kicked off, when it first got started. And my father had made um, what he felt to be a kind of difficult compromise. He decided to take the civil service exam so that he could provide a middle-class life for my family. And in joining the civil service at that time, working here in Metro Tech Center, my father's best friend, as I recall, and again, these are memories from my childhood, uh, was a gentleman who was also an immigrant from the Caribbean. He was an Afro-Caribbean gentleman who, just as someone who became very dear to my father, um, his other colleagues were... Um, from Latin America, you know, you had other folks who are, you know, part of this kind of white ethnic Brooklyn thing. But there weren't other folks of his exact background. And it's interesting because, you know, he kind of absorbed the rhythms of that workplace and kind of learned how to chat with people and just, you know, okay, okay, you know, he's going to talk about professional sports. He was a big tennis fan, but he knew, okay, but I'm, I'm going to know enough to talk about, you know, baseball and <laughs> basketball and what have you. And then later, uh, my father also was an accountant who worked in the Bangladeshi community. And it's funny because later he found himself in a really overwhelmingly Bangladeshi milieu. And that's had an effect on him too, right? Um, so, you know, some of those ties that he had to people outside of his community, they did attenuate a bit when he went full-time into his own small business that is fundamentally an ethnic small business. So uh, to me, it's just interesting to see that arc of people in my own family, whereas you know my life was just really informed by, okay, went to public school, and then I tried to get on this escalator of like, okay, what does it take to kind of make your way in the world? And you know, who are the people you're going to form relationships with? Had I grown up 10, 15, 20 years later, I'm utterly confident my experience would have been very, very different. Uh, not to say it would have been worse or better, but it would have been markedly different. And I dare say that some of my ability to navigate cultural differences, some of the kind of ingenuous lack of suspicion that I have when encountering people of different backgrounds, I'm not entirely sure that would have all been there. Yeah, I mean, it seems like in your book, you're breaking down this idea of assimilation, it seems like, into a couple of different processes. One of them is work life. You also draw attention to another aspect that sometimes overlaps, sometimes doesn't, which is this sort of cultural assimilation process that is identical with this economic life. Yes, it's certainly true that there's economic assimilation and technically in the social scientific literature that's understood as, 
you know, a cluster of things, including wage assimilation. To what extent do your outcomes come to resemble those of natives, let's say the average among natives, or natives who belong to a given panethnic group, say I'm an Asian American or non-Hispanic white or what have you? There are all of those subtleties. And then, you know, when you describe cultural assimilation or linguistic assimilation, that's one way to divvy things up. I divvy things up a little bit differently myself, and I see this as a really, really important part of the story. You know, one thing I talk about in the book is this difference between the mainstream and the margins. So the mainstream, you could describe loosely, and this is an idea I've borrowed from the sociologist Richard Alba, you know, who I'm sure, by the way, has lots of disagreements with how I characterize this stuff. But it's this idea of a place where your cultural background does not feel determinative. It is not the kind of fundamental fact about you as a person. It is not the fundamental thing shaping how it is you navigate through life. Now, it's very clear that there are people excluded from the mainstream in the society. Now, some of those exclusions follow a racial pattern, but of course, it's a little bit more complex than that, partly because these so-called racial groups themselves, these pan-ethnic categories, they themselves have a huge amount of variegation internally. So if you're someone who is, let's say, a kind of affluent, upwardly mobile, fluently English-speaking, super-educated person of Bangladeshi origin, you could have one assimilation trajectory. If you're someone who is also of Bangladeshi origin, but you are working class, you live in an enclave, your education, you know, it's pretty darn minimal, and you find yourself in very straitened circumstances. To survive, you must be part of a tight-knit ethnic network that helps you navigate and make sense of a world that is very foreign to you. So the thing is that, yeah, I mean, those people, you know, you could say that they both belong to the same quote-unquote race, but actually all of these other institutions through which you mediate your experience has a huge effect on what assimilation is going to mean for you. This is also, though, where I I did have some questions about how you're describing this process, because the fact that someone is not economically successful as an immigrant doesn't necessarily mean that their ethnic identity becomes the most important factor. Oh, sure. Well, Cameron, there are a few different factors that interact in these cases, right? One of them is also the role of replenishment. So if you have a group that is continuously replenished, then that also changes the dynamic in terms of how you intermingle, how you encounter members of other groups. So, you know, you know that in the history of this country, you have had ethnic enclaves stretching back a really long way. You had Greek towns, Little Italy's, you name it. And what happened to those enclaves is that at a certain point in the 20th century, those enclaves stopped being replenished. And that is kind of when you then saw the rise of the Levitt towns and the change in ethnic identity from something that was very much a product of lived experience to something that was largely symbolic and optional. So there are many different dynamics that inform this, and it's going to vary markedly from group to group. So you're absolutely right that there are lots of dimensions. It's not as simple as, okay, if you belong to this class, therefore, ethnic identity will be most important to you. That's definitely not true. But what I am saying is that you can see some patterns in which some folks who are foreign-born or second-generation like us are racialized. And whether or not you're racialized really depends on a lot of other policy factors. You know, so replenishment plays into it, sure, but also it's a question of resources. How many resources are we able to apply to affect integration? You know, the way that I put it is this. A lot of people describe the immigration debate as being about being open or closed. I describe it as being about being humble or hubristic. And so then also just to clarify the sort of policy shift that you in your book describe and 
wanting to move towards would be a, a migration system that shifts towards bringing in more skilled workers and, and fewer low-skilled workers? Is that Well, the, the heart of it is moving away from a very heavy emphasis on family unification. And that's complicated because immigration is one of those issues like the size of government where actually, you know, the public opinion can be interpreted in lots of different ways. So when you talk about family unification, it sounds very appealing to people for good reason. But, you know, what's wound up happening is that our system is so skewed in that direction that I think that it gives rise to the potential for some problems down the line. So this wasn't something you mentioned in the book, but it was something I asked myself, which was what was the original justification for such an emphasis on family unification? Oh, well, I'm glad you asked. The, the original justification was um, basically racial in origin. There was an anxiety that if you open the doors in the 65 Act, if you make it neutral, then you would have a large influx of non-whites into the country. And the thinking was that if we make it a family-based policy, if we really make that pronounced in the policy, you will ensure that it's chiefly going to be the relatives of the current U.S. citizenry. Now, of course, what they hadn't anticipated is that the folks who are going to be most keen to be reunited with relatives will be recent migrants, right? It seems now that it's a kind of a rights-based argument in some sense, almost a human rights-based argument, that there is some injustice or cruelty in not allowing people to be reunited with their families in some sense, and that just like any American would want to be able to live their lives with their families, immigrants ought to have the same uh, ability. Yes. So you hit on something really interesting and important. When you are looking at the discourse around immigration, it has changed pretty dramatically in recent decades towards a more rights-oriented discourse. Now, there are, however, some ironies to this. One irony is that um, actually, you know, in a way, you're conflating humanitarian migration and other modes of migration, non-humanitarian modes of migration. And, you know, you know that in a complicated world, you know, these things tend to blur together. They tend to blend together. But when you're talking about U.S. immigration law, there is a quite specific and important material difference between humanitarian migration. If you're a humanitarian migrant to the United States, there is no expectation that you will not be a public charge. For people who are not humanitarian migrants, there has traditionally been this expectation that you, know, you will be self-sufficient. You will not be dependent on government. You know, there is a kind of tricky thing here. Is it right to say that if you're bringing relatives with you, they ought to be capable of supporting themselves? Or at the very least, should there be sponsor recovery? This was a principle introduced in 1996, the idea that if you're going to sponsor an immigrant, you, the sponsor, are responsible for that person's well-being. Now, the tricky thing is that that is really tough to administer, and it's very politically unpopular. And the federal government never really provided guidelines for exactly what that ought to look like, so it's never actually happened. Now, if you actually said to people, you're welcome to bring your relatives, but by the way, you are going to be responsible for their care and feeding for a defined period of time. And if you fail to meet your responsibility, you will be held liable for that. Again, these are not refugees. You know, these are people who are saying that, hey, I want to be reunited with my family. And there's this expectation, okay, cool, you can do that. But we're expecting that you're going to be in a position to help provide 
for your family, for that extended family network. And that's one thing that people tend to gloss over these conversations. What happens then is you say, well, gosh, this expectation that we ought to revise the public charge doctrine, you know, forget about the Trump proposal, just even in any direction that we take into account the way that self-sufficiency looks different in 2018 than it did you know, at another time, uh, you know, this is outrageous. How dare you do that? And what is that? Is that really just a rights oriented way of thinking or Cameron, dare I say it, is it political? Yeah, I think that makes sense. But though the point that comes to mind is the fact that it's political and the fact that even that there are advocates involved making these political arguments isn't necessarily a reason to dismiss the claims. I mean, it seems like a lot of what you're describing in the book are the constraints that political opinion should play on policy choices. I mean, you're describing the mainstream oh, yeah. uh, white ethnic groups that have political objections. Well, Cameron, I want to push even further. Changes. I want to push even further by what I mean about this being political. If you wanted a policy that was humanitarian in nature, you would not have an immigration policy that chiefly facilitates the way for people to be admitted to the country who are the relatives of existing U.S. citizens and lawful permanent residents who reside in middle-income or even affluent countries. You would have a policy, presumably, that says we, are, we will find people from the kind of, let's say, 60 most impoverished, most highly indebted poor countries in the world. Those are the people for whom the place premium is going to be the largest and most dramatic. Those are the people who will get the most out of migration, if you're thinking about it in humanitarian terms, strictly speaking. But you're absolutely right. You have to take those politics seriously, which is why in this book, I offer a pretty darn um, moderate approach, one that's saying, hey, let's not slash existing immigration levels. Hey, let's have an amnesty for the long-settled, unauthorized immigrant population. Hey, let's allow family ties to be taken into account. Let's just not make them overwhelmingly dominant over other considerations. So I absolutely take your point. Those political considerations on the part of the naturalized, on the part of the foreign-born, uh, deserve to be taken seriously, just as the political considerations of folks on the other side of the fence, folks who haven't had that experience, ought to be taken seriously too. And then what you also include in the book, you describe how else uh, these people who would otherwise be migrating for humanitarian reasons could be assisted in the countries where they already live. Do you want to describe how that might work? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, this is a very fraught subject, and it's one that, uh, you know, many friends have told me I would have done well to avoid it entirely. Uh, but basically what I say is this. When you're looking at the number of people with a hunger for a better life, the number is literally in the billions. And if we're taking that seriously, this idea that we're going to let a small, token, symbolic number of people into our countries and then pat ourselves on the back strikes me in a world that's going to be, you know, characterized by extreme climate change and, you know, kind of all sorts of other drivers of mass migration, state failure. It just doesn't strike me as sound. People want opportunity and we're not going to be able to accommodate all of them. So that's why I think what we need to do is look to the fact that there's a huge amount of south-south migration. South-south migration dwarfs south to north migration. And how do we actually see to it that the countries that are hosts for this migration have the capacity they need to deal with it, to help people flourish and thrive? And there are some small tentative experiments, you know, where the idea is, hey, let's change our conception of what it means to be a forced migrant, of what it means to have refugee status. Or more broadly, 
you know, hey, what are other ways we can create new cities, new environments in which people can flourish? Certainly the idea of creating special economic zones, oftentimes in partnership with third countries, um, I think that, yeah, that is the heart of the idea. You know, it's worth taking seriously the political advantages that the migration advocates have on their side, which is we're dealing with tangible people already in our country and assisting their family members. It's something very tangible about that. The idea of massive foreign aid to assist folks, it's going to be maybe a tougher policy argument to make. I think you're 100% right. Saying that, hey, you know, bring a tiny number of relatives of people who are already citizens from the Philippines, Mexico, Bangladesh, and, you know, kind of India and a kind of handful of other countries. Um, Yeah, you're right. That is a really low political lift. It's a great thing that's going to get a lot of applause. And you're right. That's saying that, hey, actually, we need to think about foreign aid. We need to think about creating opportunities elsewhere in the world. It's not very attractive. I don't see that as a super strong substantive or moral argument for the former position rather than the latter. But your point is absolutely well taken. So is it possible, do you think, to make this argument to shift immigration policies in the ways you're describing, restrict them in certain ways while expanding them in others, in a way that people of ethnic backgrounds themselves don't feel attacked by, excluded by. Is that a challenge that you think is difficult or? Honestly, I think it's almost impossible because if I were an advocate on the other side, you know, my job would be to misrepresent the things Raihan Salam is saying. Uh, it would be to, you know, damn him by association and what have you. And that, you know, makes a ton of sense. It works in politics. I mean, you see this all over the place, right? But, you know, why do I soldier on? Why do I keep trying to advance these ideas? A couple of reasons. Um One is that, look, I mean, you see how quickly the politics of a given issue can change. Uh, If you look at the conversations around Medicare for all we're having right now, I will tell you that 10 years ago, we were not having these conversations. Um, You know, you can say that in any number of different domains. Uh, You know, these things change surprisingly quickly and being at the ready and trying to kind of make the most humane, decent arguments you can. The other piece of it extends back to something you and I started talking about at the beginning of this uh, conversation. Um, I belong to this very tiny, very weird, very idiosyncratic group of people who are, you know, second generation Americans from these non-European parts of the world. I feel an obligation. Um, You know, when I was growing up, I definitely encountered racism. I also encountered other people who had no reason to, were not related to me, who took a chance on me and who invested in my future. And um, the idea that we would immediately dismiss people who say, hey, wait a second, I'm a little concerned about the pace of immigration. I'm a little concerned about the cultural tenor. The idea that we would immediately dismiss such people, and that's something I see, by the way, with a lot of people um, who look like me, who... um, were lucky enough like me to go to great colleges. I see that in a lot of people. And I just feel like I here I am writing this totally earnest um, to the point where, uh, it, where I'm sure, you know, I'll be ridiculed uh, making this kind of argument. But I'm just doing it for I'm doing it for my fifth grade teacher. I'm doing it for these neighborhoods that I saw feel so combustible and then kind of come back from the brink. I just think that there are going to be other people second-generation Americans, 12th-generation Americans, recent arrivals. We'll see what I'm trying to do here. I'm trying to say, hey, we can reset this in a way that is in keeping with our history, in keeping with our generosity of spirit, our decency, and our compassion, but that also is a little bit less hubristic 
about where we are, about the realities of ethnic and class stratification, about the realities of a changing global economy. That's what I'm trying to do. And that majority does not exist right now, Cameron. But my hope is that 10 years from now, 15 years from now, the world is going to look very different. Thanks again, Raihan. His new book is Melting Pot or Civil War, A Son of Immigrants Makes the Case Against Open Borders. Thanks a lot, Dan. That's Raihan Salam, author of Melting Pot or Civil War, A Son of Immigrants Makes the Case Against Open Borders. Thanks for listening to The ER. Our podcast is produced by Dan Efron and edited by Rob Sachs. Our host, Sarah Wildman, will be back next week.